Here we go. My name's Todd. This is Kathy. Welcome back to another episode of Zen Parenting Radio. This is podcast number 611. Why listen to Zen Parenting Radio? Because you'll feel outstanding. And always remember our motto, which is that the best predictor of a child's well-being is a parent's self-understanding. On today's show, we are going to talk about anxiety versus excitement. Not really versus. And. and uh, Simone Biles and a few other things that we'll find out. Sounds good. But first, uh, Kathy does these end parenting moments. If you listen to the show, you know all about it. Uh, they come out twice a week. You give us your email address and we send you, Kathy sends you, um, two quick, I don't know, 30 to 60 second blogs um, that she writes. They're just essays. Essays. Because they're really not blogs. You can't find them anywhere. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? They just come through email, so you have to subscribe to it. So they come out on Tuesdays and Fridays, and this one we're going to highlight is one on rejection, and you always have a quote to begin it, and it's from the Smiths. Don't you love the Smiths? Nah, I don't. Did you pull up this song? No, I did not. Well, you must. Uh, But, okay, why don't you talk about what this is, and I'll try to find this thing. Well, I think what... I w- what I was talking about with rejection is I had just had a conversation with one of my girlfriends about her son and she was feeling like he had been trying a bunch of different things and things hadn't been working out. You know, he hadn't made a certain team. He had been struggling with his friends and just feeling rejected. And I wanted to write about what rejection really is and why it hurts so much and why we're so afraid of it. And basically the reason that it hurts is because social research demonstrates that regions of the brain that are activated during painful sensory experiences are also activated during social rejection. So rejection literally hurts, kind of like makes us a raw nerve. Mm -hmm. Like it's like painful literally. And so, but rejection is also twofold that sometimes rejection can feel like someone is just being mean and trying to intentionally hurt us. Yeah. And sometimes it carries a wisdom. Like sometimes rejection has a message in it. Like for example, if you apply for a job and you're like, I really want this job and then you don't get picked, sometimes it's an opportunity to reflect. Like what did I not bring mm. to the table? What? How did that interview go? Um, what what was I thinking? You know, maybe the position was like for a management level and you haven't had management level experience yet. And so the rejection was just a reminder that more experience is needed or that something different is needed. Or, you know, for your kid who is trying out for something that maybe it's that's not where they're supposed to be. Mm-hmm. That's not their place right now. It might be next year, six months, two months, five years, but right now, and, and it gives them an opportunity to redefine or refine what they're doing. If it is just about being mean and you're just getting someone who's being mean to you, it, it rejection necessitates some kind of processing because you have to be able to look that in the eye and completely reject it. Yeah. Meaning if you don't discuss it, then you integrate the meanness as being truth. Yeah. And you have so rejection is inevitably a healthy sign of risk taking. Um, it's a willingness to put ourselves out there, and rejection is sometimes part of the process. And if we can see it that way, rather than a definitive, um, you know, decision on who we are, mm-hmm. and we just see it either as growth or something we need to completely say no, this is not okay, then um, I feel like we can maybe be less afraid of it. Yeah, I was going to say. Um, so if it's mean, let's call it mean spirited. Yeah. Then um, the first thing I think of is. 
dismiss it. Correct. Like the, now, having said that, even mean-spirited feedback could be valuable if you can filter out the meanness to it. Sure. It, it, it can be twofold. Number one, mean-spirited feedback, like someone being mean to you, could be information that this person is not really your friend. Mm-hmm. It could also be information that underneath the mean-spiritedness is some kind of information that we didn't have. But I kind of feel like when someone is being mean, the reason we need to discuss it is if we don't at least express how it made us feel, then we try... Because, for example, sometimes, especially in middle school and early high school, there's a lot of people being mean to us, possibly, not everybody, but I think that's very common, and we kind of just swallow it. Yeah. And we are being told to suck it up and move on, or this is just kids being kids. If we actually talked about it and said this, and you don't have to talk to that kid about it, but a parent or someone you care about, and you said that really hurt me, and you get the opportunity to recognize that's not really who you are, or that their meanness is not something you need to take on, yeah. then you can reject it and kick it out. Yeah. So in other words, there's gold in it, regardless Correct. of what happens, if you process through it. Right. And it could be a half of a second, like, right. oh, this is mean-spirited feedback that I don't believe holds any truth. Then you know, if you process through that, even in a in a in a in the snap of a finger, the snap of fingers, then all of a sudden you can get through it. I think what you're saying, and I'm probably just restating what you just said, is if we outsource this need to be approved by others, even though it's not coming from this heart centered place or even this honest place, then we can just quickly. Um, if, if we don't process through that, then all of a sudden it gets inside of us and it makes us stuck. Well, words are things. And so if we don't talk about what the words feel like and we just say, oh, it's no big deal and I can handle it, I think a lot of parents would go by the old thought of, well, that toughens you up. But really it may make you just kind of numb and shut down. Mm-hmm. And toughening you up, the, w- one person's perception of their tough is sometimes as a therapist, my perception is more like, no, they've just shut down. Yeah. So now they're not sharing anymore. So the in-between is you can share that something hurts you let it go and then get pretty tough in a good way where yep. you're like, I'm not going to let that take me over. You so. ready for the song, sweetie? Of course. Is this from a movie? I feel like it's a movie. How oh. many movies is this from? I don't know. They're showing John Bender right now in the music video, or at least whatever. Well, it wasn't in Breakfast Club, but I think it's very representative of a very, like, angsty kind of... I just heard something on a podcast today, and then we'll uh, get into anxiety and excitement. Um, And I thought it was valuable. Um, One of my friends does a podcast called Embrace Growth, and they were talking about the nature of feedback and how one of the guys who was on the podcast, their mentor, one of their mentors said... When they're, whenever they deliver feedback uh, to somebody, whether it's in a business setting or whatever, that, that the leader will say, listen, we're just throwing darts at a board, mm-hmm. trying our best to give you the best feedback possible. And we're trying to throw bullseyes in, in a way that it's going to land well. But you as the, receive, the, the recipient of the feedback are going to have to decide for yourself whether or not we even hit the target and what it means. And I just thought that that was kind of like a a great way to present even when you're about to give somebody feedback, whether it's your employee or your children or whatever. It's just because I'm saying this doesn't mean it's truth. 
It's just from my perspective, this is what I see. And you, as the receiver of the feedback, have to decide whether or not it serves you or not versus us like, oh, we got this feedback. It must be true. Yeah, I, I, I hear that and I'm kind of process. I'm kind of letting I'm letting my brain process it for a second because I agree with you. I think, though, when someone's giving feedback and again, I'm thinking you're thinking about someone like maybe in the work world, mm-hmm. but I'm thinking when someone's giving feedback about something, if they're coming from a place of integrity, it is true because it's their experience. Well, it, it is their true experience. But if I say you suck at delivering PowerPoint presentations, that's just my opinion that you suck at delivering PowerPoint. Right. That doesn't mean that you do that because somebody else in that same audience might say, actually, I thought the power, the way you managed the PowerPoint was great. So in other words, I'm just trying not to outsource the idea that somebody tells you something and then you off, you automatically have to take it as truth. Right. And there is this gray place in between where if somebody thinks they're great and is unwilling to hear anything mm-hmm. as feedback or as constructive criticism, then we're in trouble because yeah. then that person is going to be like a narcissist and think nobody knows that I'm good at everything I'm good. It's like, you know, I don't watch the show anymore, but watching American Idol and sometimes people would come on the show and they would like sing and, they, and you know, there is a difference between a good singer and a not so good singer. All of us should sing loudly and freely in the car, in the shower, Mm -hmm. but not all of us are meant to be on American Idol. Right. And so a lot of times they get this feedback, unfortunately, sometimes unkind from Simon old school. Um, But then they're like, no, I'm going to make a go of this. This is my dream. And it's like, that may not be the right path. Mm -hmm. And so I guess my point is, is that, um, yeah, if you're getting a collection of, various people giving you the, the exact same, same feedback, feedback. Right. Um, but I hear, but your bigger message is just because somebody tells you something from their perspective doesn't mean it's always true for you. Sure. Yeah. Um, there was something else I was going to say, but I forgot what it was. Um, so before we get into anxiety versus excitement, well, we're going to talk about Simone Biles really oh, quick uh, and then we're going to Sim- do that. Uh, all right. Simone Biles, let's go. You sure? Yeah. Okay. So I wanted to just briefly, I I made, I wrote myself a note like five days ago saying, don't skip over this story because obviously this story about Simone Biles has been uh, her coming to the Olympics and then deciding to pull herself out for her own mental well-being um, has been the story for the last week. And Todd and I haven't recorded a podcast during this time. So this is the first time I can really discuss it. And I just wanted to, you know, I feel like I've read every article under the sun with all sorts of different perspectives around her ch- this choice for herself. And and in some ways, was it really even a choice or was it what needed to be done because she could not um, – she literally – could not do twists in the air with and figure out where she was going to land. Yeah. She had, you know, we had now have some language around her experience. The which twisties. Is called, yeah, the twisties, where you literally cannot figure out where you are in the air. And I've never heard of that term, but it makes me think of uh, the yips. Ex- it, they relate it to the oh, yips. Oh, they do, okay. It's exactly like, the, and divers have the same experience. Okay. So like divers and gymnasts know what this is, mm-hmm. the twisties, because one of the reasons, and I think you listen to this podcast too, Todd, is that one of the reasons Simone was such a, um, such an amazing gymnast from such a young age is her coaches realized that she did have very good body mind Mm. control that even as a young girl she understood where her body was Mm. in the air and that's the only way to be able to do those yeah you gotta know you gotta be hyper present correct and that's the only way to be able to land so she realized she couldn't do that so her taking herself out 
um, you know, where a lot of people, you know, the way back when, hopefully we're beyond this point, but a lot of like, oh, that's selfish or that's horrible. Not only was for her own best interest to make sure she didn't hurt herself, but number two, to make sure that her team, because she actually did do a vault, I believe, and got a really low score. Mm. And she's like, this is not going to work out. So I'm going to pull myself out so my team can do do something and maybe metal, yeah. which they did. They uh, The team got a silver, which is, you know, our country is so interesting about stuff like that because it's like we don't even notice that, yeah. you know, where they really did do well. And then, uh, you know, another girl got the all around from our team. Mm-hmm. What is her name? Sunny or is it Sunny? I don't um, know. I, I don't remember all the girls' names. I didn't watch it as closely as I usually do. We watched do. a lot of handball this weekend, Oh, sweetie. boy, I did. And... The, the uh, trampoline, gymnastics. trampoline gymnastics and ping pong. Here's my quick take. Real is quick. ping pong and handball the same thing? No. I think they call it table tennis. Table tennis. Um, so real quick, we were with some friends. We had a lot of time to watch TV this weekend. And I kept on putting on the NBC Tokyo feed and the amount of handball that they played. <laughs> all due respect to handball players, it just seems like a really boring sport for me to watch. Consistently and, over and over. We yeah, didn't they just keep going first, back and forth yeah. and throwing the ball in the net, and like there's no extra points. There's doesn't seem, anyways. So then our one friend's like, pull up trampoline gymnastics on YouTube, and I did, and it was the most enthralling <laughs> moments of my life watching these people skyrocket on a trampoline. They're like, I don't know, thirty or forty feet up in the air. Why is it that I'm watching handball for the fourteenth hour of the day when there's trampoline gymnastics to be seen? I know. Anyway. I know. It's like you'd think there'd be kind of a more of a mix. But mm. anyway, so the thing I wanted to say about Simone Biles is like like we always like to do on Zen Parenting is to see the wider perspective of this experience for her. Cause I don't really want to get into the details of of um you know there is no right or wrong, good or bad, but it's that's not what it's about. Like, first of all, just to go back a little bit and recognize that Simone Biles already has plenty of gold medals. Mm-hmm. Not that that means she shouldn't have continued on in the Olympics. Allie Raceman did it. Sure. Um, and there was another, oh, and Gabby Douglas also mm-hmm. had two Olympics. So you can do more than one Olympics, but she has had yeah. so much success. And on the same note, she also just came off of the last two or three years recognizing that USA Gymnastics did not protect her mm. or her teammates and because of the Larry Nasser experience and that it wasn't just Larry Nasser, it was all of gymnastics. The system. And the Caroli farm, the ranch, um, not the farm, it was a ranch. Um, the do you do you rem- did you watch um, Athlete A? No. Todd, well, it's really interesting for those of you who you know want to know more about the Larry Nasser story. Um, there's a documentary called Athlete A, and I believe it's on um, Netflix right now. But it gives you a lot of like background to how he finally got brought to, brought to justice. But and, and then just to know more about how the Carolis, who were the ones who you know the coaches who yeah. brought them the gold, who were coached them to the gold last time, they were very abusive, mm-hmm. and they would use bullying techniques, and they would use starvation techniques, and it wasn't a healthy environment. Right. And so she went through all that, you know, the Larry Nasser thing, and then she decided to go back 
and be a part of the Olympic team for her country mm-hmm. again. And then when she found out that the Olympics was going to be moved from 2020 to 2021, you probably heard this on the podcast. It said she literally went in the locker room and just cried yeah. because what she realized is she was going to have to do this a whole another, another year. year and that the focus was going to be all on her. She was already 24 years old, which is very old for yeah. gymnasts in the in the United States. Allie Raisman was 21 when she did her last Olympics, and that was she was considered old. Yeah. So 24 is significant. And I guess what I'm saying is I know some people say, well, then she shouldn't have gone. That she was still able mm-hmm. to do what she needed to do. But the fact that she, and I was just reading something that she actually, thank God we had her because she was the one who were able to move the team away from the Corollis. Uh-huh. She used her power and influence to to speak up about things and to change USA Gymnastics. So a lot of things have been on her shoulders that we have a viewer as a viewer, have not seen. And it's just a perfect example, I think, of wider perspective and seeing something beyond that nobody is worth anything unless they bring home the gold for us. As if, who is who are us? Like, I understand it's for our country, but aren't we... There's like this humanity part where we're like, first of all, don't we trust the rest of the team? Mm -hmm. They made it as well. And that she has done enough. And that if she knew that she couldn't do this, that we support her. Well, yeah, and I don't have much. Maybe 20 years ago I'd be, you know, a little bit more bothered by it. But I, it's as simple as she needed to pull out, let her pull out for whatever reason. And I'm sure she had good reasons to do that. And it sounds like her safety in doing these crazy flips that she does and her emotional safety of pers- persevering through this amount of fear and she's shown us she could do this. So I, I trust her intuition. And as a matter of fact, I am uh, inspired by her ability to take care of herself. Um, Cause you know, sometimes I'm doing things for other people. Right. For sure. And she has the guts to say, you know what, this isn't good for me. And if it's not good for me, it's not good for the team. Right. So anyways, I'm inspired by her. I always have been, I don't pretend to track women's gymnastics more than once every four years. But, um, you know, for anybody who's criticizing this young lady for taking care of herself, I don't I don't agree. Well, and like uh, Naomi Osaka, is that her name? Yeah, the, the tennis, tennis player? player. Yeah. And that she also needed to... She took mental health exactly, and all that stuff. And that these two women, and they are demonstrating the ability to say, I need a break or I need space or I need to make sure I make myself a priority so I can continue to have a full life. Because we think that all they stand for is that moment where they do the big flip or the big, you know, they hit the ball and that's all they are. But remember, they are, you know, they have significant others. They have sisters, brothers, families, friends, like they have other parts of their life sure. that they need to stay healthy for. And we some we look at them as something that they need to do this for us. And, you know, there's a lot of people who think that, you know, these two women, plus a lot of other people who are now sticking up for themselves in a um, self-compassionate, self-aware and self-nurturing way that they're changing sports Mm -hmm. because the old school, and I'm going to use this word in a traditional sense, not, I'm not just talking about all men. I'm talking about masculine approach Mm -hmm. is screw your needs. Just do it, buck up and do it. And while I know for many, you know, I read Twitter, so I saw a lot of white men who Mm -hmm. continue to believe that. Sure. Um, 
that doesn't work for everybody. And is that the best case scenario it, that we harm ourselves, hurt ourselves or put our needs last to make sure that we demonstrate what we perceive as strength, but is really weakness? Well, and for me, uh, I, you know, for those who get offended by talking about masculinity, I would say stoicism. Yeah. Like, you know, the idea to persevere through all obstacles and all that, there's times to be stoic. There there's are times, times yeah. not to be stoic. Yeah. And for Simone Biles, for her well-being and probably the well-being of the team, it was time for her to not be stoic and to surrender to what was going on inside of her. And that's a really good point that what I think the reason I was kind of relaying all that history at the beginning was that she's been stoic a number of times. She's shown that she could do it. In the 2016 game, she had a broken foot. Mm -hmm. Did you know that? Mm -hmm. I didn't know that. I guess supposedly they, oh, no, no. You know what? She didn't have a broken foot. That was, um, that was Michaela. Um, It was a different... A gymnast who it, it's a long story but she was supposed to do the beam and Nassar said that she hadn't broken her foot but she really had mm. broke her foot and she had to go out there and perform anyway which is really typical of yeah. the sport too and I don't think it's just of gymnastics I think it happens in football I think it happens in a lot of sports yeah. where the they say no you're fine yeah. um, when really you've had eight concussions and you probably shouldn't be playing right. kind of thing but I guess my point is, is that there is a time, we have all had times of stoicism. There's times, if we look at Simone Biles over the long term, she has been stoic the majority of her professional career. If you're an Olympic gymnast, you have had to be. You've had no choice. And so to have a moment where you realize, I will I will hurt myself, I could possibly cause more harm to my team, and to make that choice is a great act of bravery. Sure. And I know people are like, it's not, but I, when it happened, you and I had a very strong response For to sure. s- support of her. So anyway, that's okay. that. So before we move on to anxiety and yes. excitement, I want to talk about our partner of the week, and that is Prisma. And Prisma offers a totally new way to go to school. Do your kids look forward to going to school? Do they complain about being bored in class? Prisma is an online alternative to traditional school for fourth to eighth graders. Prisma knows that most of today's kids will end up working jobs that don't even exist yet. So they focus on developing 21st century skills like creativity, critical thinking, and collaboration rather than having kids memorize facts and take standardized tests. Prisma offers a flexible curriculum that adapts to every child's interests and learning speed, which means your child learns what they're curious about, is never left behind, and gets the attention they deserve from Prisma's expert coaches. Prisma is an innovative online school for 4th to 8th graders that gives them the flexibility to be their best selves while developing the skills they need for a successful future. Admissions for this fall of 2021 are now live and filling fast. Go to joinprisma.com to schedule a call or learn more. Thank you, Prisma. Thank you. All right. Um, Here we go. So anxiety and excitement. So I learned something really kind of fun and interesting this morning that we've never talked about on the show. And that is that anxiety and and excitement are basically the same chemicals. In the brain? Yeah. Like it's basically the same. So... Let me start by saying this so everybody knows this is based in research. This is Harvard research. Mm -hmm. Okay. So everybody calm down. You know, they went to Harvard. (laughs) Oh, Harvard. Um, But Harvard research, the, the article starts by saying Harvard research says, don't try and calm down when you feel anxious, shift to excitement instead. And what the explanation is that I'll just kind of paraphrase is that if you are in a high state of anxiety, like you are feeling really anxious, when people tell you to calm down, 
it's a huge request. Yeah. Think about that. All your chemicals and, you know, everything's kind of moving fast. You know, your heartbeat is really rapid. You know, you're maybe starting to sweat. There's a lot of things going on in your body. And to ask it to go from 60 to zero is almost a ridiculous ask. You're basically asking people to not be the way they're being right now, which is not an easy thing to do for most of us. Exactly. Not only don't, because obviously there's the connection between what you're thinking and what then your how your body is responding. So you're asking someone to not think certain thoughts and then to make their body not have this experience. And so in no, obviously when we're feeling anxiety, we can definitely use tools to calm down. I'm not saying that that is not worthy. Yeah, it's not fruitless. It's not fruitless. There is something that can come of that. But another thing that we could think about, and this is something that came up with my daughter, which I thought was really interesting, is that while anxiety is kind of a negative state of arousal, we can take that state of arousal and decide to focus on excitement, which means we don't have to calm down. We just need to switch our viewpoint. It's like a reframe. It is. So like, this is the way I look at it. Like you have, you have this energy mm-hmm. moving, right? And you have, it's the same energy. So I was explaining this to Todd this morning. I got so excited thinking about it because you have this energy and and you can either choose to sh- to have the energy used for worst case scenarios, like fear of what could happen. What if this happens? What if I don't make a friend? What if I trip when I'm walking down the stairs? What if I forget to pack something when I'm going somewhere? What if I, you know, don't understand the problem and a teacher calls on me? Whatever. All that what if, what if, what if, what if. And we can take that same energy and instead of channeling it toward fear, we channel it toward excitement about what could be. Now, with in what could be, there's still uncertainty and unknown. But you guys know that feeling. Like we we at our house, we tend to call it being nervous sighted, which is like right before you're going to go, like if my daughter's going to go dance or if I'm going to go do a speaking engagement or if one of my daughters is going to speak up and is she dead? My oldest daughter had a, um, a class last semester. It was like a speech class. They called it something else. But she would get so pumped like she'd be like, I'm going to do my speech live today. I just decided instead mm. of turning it in, I'm going to do it live. And she'd be so like pumped, like nervous yeah. and excited. And instead of channeling all that energy into that, I'm going to fail, this is going to go wrong. It's like, what could come of this? Mm. Cause it could be something really exciting. Well, and I would say if you're, uh, you know, cause most of the time anxiety projects something into the future or something that might go wrong. Right. Right. And that's fine if your brain starts doing that. But I would say if we can somehow encourage ourselves to reframe it saying, fine, spend a little bit of time over there on that side of the equation, which is the things that can go wrong. But can you also spend as much time of what might go right? Correct. Um, You know, you get nervous getting on an airplane. I might, it might crash or you might land safely. Like, can you just refocus or put on that, that lens, put on those glasses not just the doom and gloom glasses, but what might go right. And I don't know if that helps. It's kind of hard to like just tell yourself to not be nervous that a plane's going to crash. But but unless you're at least trying to jog your your brain to do something different, it's just going to spiral out of control. And, you know, maybe at the beginning we go to and. Mm-hmm. It could also be great. Yeah. You know, like maybe we – because I feel like I do that a lot where I'm like, okay – this could be a disaster. This may not be the right move. And this may be the best thing I ever did. And maybe that's at least a beginning place. Mm-hmm. You know, like when our kids, 
Um, you know, I'll look at it from a parenting perspective when our kids like, but what if, what if, you know, I don't catch the ball in mm-hmm. the game or what if I do forget a step or what if I ask a question in front of the class and everybody laughs at me and it's like, yeah, but what if you have the best day of your life? Okay. Like, let's talk about gymnasts again. Um, a gymnast from yesterday, will you look her up for me, Todd? Um, she just won a, she just won the floor routine um, gold. It's, it's not Suni Lee, is it? No, because she got the all around. Okay. okay, Jade Carey is her name. So she, one day, like a few days ago, she did, she went to do the vault mm-hmm. and she tripped because the carpet was oh, kind wow. of moved up. So she tripped and completely messed up. Messed up. Yeah. Okay. So worst day ever. Her team, including Simone, she talks to, she gives Simone a lot of credit for this, said, okay, this happened. It's done. It's over. You have the floor to do next. Mm. So you have to get geared up for the floor. Mm. And so she basically decided this didn't work, but I'm going to take all this energy and I'm going to channel it into the floor routine. And she got a gold medal. Yeah. She was the only one who hadn't gotten a gold medal yet. And now she has it. So uh, she could have gone down that spiral. Correct. And instead, somehow through Simone or her own self. Yep. Did uh, used it, yep. or maybe she didn't use it, but she did turn it around and was able to focus in a yep. way that you talk about needing to be hyper-focused. And she just, you know, I, I haven't seen the exercise, but I'm sure it was pretty damn good. Well, and here's the most important part, because the reason that I'm saying let's let's think about this as being an energy and let's, instead of trying to get rid of it, turn it from anxiety to excitement, is because trying to resist anxiety is literally futile. Yeah. Okay. So it's like when we resist anxiety, it leads us to feeling anxious about our anxiety, which makes us more anxious, which makes us more anxious about our anxiety, mm-hmm. right? It's like this feedback loop where we're like, oh my God, I'm anxious. What does this mean? What if I get more anxious? What? So instead of deciding that anxiety is bad and putting ourselves into a, if you resist it, you know, whatever you resist persists, let's just move the energy. Let's yeah. just take, allow the energy because like, For example, right before I go speak to a group, I like that my heart's beating fast because that helps me. It brings my energy up. If I like am anxious and then I decide to just calm down, I'm going to go out on a stage and be like, act like I just got a massage and nobody really wants to hear me. Right. (laughs) They want to hear somebody who's excited. Right. And so that anxious energy can be turned into something that, that is positive and helpful and enjoyable. Well, what I always say is like, whenever, I guess this was probably from college, but in speech class, I get terrified like most human beings do. And I remember my speech teacher was like, you know, it just means you care. It means it, it, and it's, there's an, there's a sharpness to that right? that can help you. Yeah. Like if I didn't care and if I wasn't anxious at all, I would probably be much more lackadaisical while giving my speech. But because I was nervous, like you do get hyper aroused yeah. yep. in those moments you do. in a way that you probably wouldn't be able to deliver a speech with the same precision or gymnastics or whatever, unless you have the state of arousal. So in other words, I think we're just saying the same thing over and over again, using different languages instead of it using you, you use it. And you know, I remember there was a book um, by Kelly McGonigal and she was she wrote the book, I think it was called The Upside of Stress. I've mm. used her book in my college class a few times. And she talks about, she 
she did a TED talk too. And she starts the TED talk by saying, I feel so guilty because I've spent my whole like research career focusing on why stress is bad for us. Mm. And she goes, and then I realized that stress, Mm. what we call stress can actually help us perform better Mm. if we are using it in a way, I think it's very similar to this. If we're allowing what it's offering us to propel us forward rather than keep us from doing what we do best. So basically what she means is exactly what you said. If you are have a heightened arousal about something or a heightened awareness, you can be more focused on what you're doing and get it done better mm-hmm. versus if you don't care, if you're apathetic, if you're disengaged, it's not going to be very well done. So let's get into the practical part of it. Let's pretend our kid is going to school and they're jacked up and anxious about whatever, the lunch table or whatever it is. Like what can we say right now that we haven't already said that might help a parent through that process when their kid is all nervous about going into whatever grade it is? Well, let me say, I, I, and maybe I'll answer your question as I go through this, is that the research demonstrates, they, it, they actually call it anxiety reappraisal. Hmm. Okay. You know, that's what it's called in the research. And that not only did they see people who were able to do this, move from anxiety to excitement, perform better on certain tasks, but it changed their entire orientation about what a stressful event was. Mm -hmm. So basically they shifted, the more they talked to people about this and helped them understand this, people were able to shift things from looking like threats to being opportunities. Mm. So I think it's just talking to our kids about instead of saying things that like that we don't really know, like that won't happen or, you know, nothing like that would happen to you or of course you're going to have a good day or things that we really can't make sure happen. Mm. You know, like we really can't, you know, I sometimes say to my girls, this is what I hope for in this situation, but I guess I can't make this be. I just know that this is what I see and this is what I hope for because... We don't know how the day will go, Um, but we can look at something and say, this is an opportunity all around, meaning let's talk about, you know, a lunchroom. You know, we may be saying to a kid, they'll say, I don't know who to sit by, or I don't have any friends during this lunch period. And it's like, that feels threatening, but instead it could be who might you, you, might you sit by or Mm -hmm. who might possibly ask you to sit with them? Maybe you stretch yourself and ask someone if you can sit somewhere. Maybe you have used that adrenaline rush to do something you have never done Mm, before. Use it as courage. Exactly. And so it becomes an opportunity. And again, sometimes late at night at 10 p.m. when we're putting our kids to to bed, telling them that they're going to use stress as an opportunity doesn't land Mm. well. I think Todd and I have both figured out that these kind of discussions are much better in the morning or later in the day when full energy is there. Yeah. Um, But it's like you know, a way to, well, I'll read something else. Um, So it's, this actually says one of the classic tools from an often overlooked passage in Viktor Frankl's work of, you know, Man's Search of Meaning, you know, that book, Mm -hmm. um, he calls this the practice of paradoxical intention. So it's simple. So basically you wish for the opposite of what you want. So here's what it sounds like. If you have a fear of public speaking, you say, I want my heart rate to get as high as possible before I walk on stage. Mm. And you can, and and we're not being facetious here. Like that's good because yeah. then you're like really attuned, right? Yeah. Fear of insomnia, like you're afraid. I'm looking forward to having my mind race so fast tonight mm. so I can't sleep. Mm. So you're kind of like, you're in, you're not allowing the anxiety to take you down. So fear of flying. I hope I get a ton of adrenaline. 
when we get up in the sky and I'm in that plane. Well, and I don't know if this makes sense, but when I hear you say that it's something that I sometimes use with coaching, I'd say, make it bigger. Yeah. Make If you make it yeah. bigger than it is, yeah. then all of a sudden you are creating a little more control than what you otherwise, instead of being a victim of the anxiety, you're actually trying to increase some form of it but you are the one doing yeah. it instead of it being done to you. That's a good way to say it. You're like taking back control of the situation, like anxiety. You know, like I remember one of my daughters saying recently, it was like a month or two ago, she said, man, I hope when I wake up in the morning that I'm okay. Mm-hmm. As if it was like an outside experience. And I was like, well, I can't determine how you will feel. Like, will your body feel good? You know, will you have a headache? Will you, you know... But you can choose, regardless of how you wake up, mm-hmm. to then do things to get yourself in a place where you feel better. Yeah. Like you are not at the mercy of your emotional experiences. I, again, you may wake up sad, depressed, whatever. That may happen. But then you're not like, well, then wah, wah, it's mm-hmm. over. You can meditate. You can breathe. You can do yoga. You can take a walk. Like... We have more power than we really believe we have. Well, and the other tool that I think I'd like to share with our audience is just the idea of normalizing it. Yeah, because for sure. I think one of the th- one of the lies that anxiety teaches us is that we're the only one going through right. it. And right. if your kid is freaked out about who they're going to sit next to in the cafeteria, you can say, you know, odds are there's a lot of other kids that are going through the exact same thing you are at this very moment. So then all of a sudden you're not the only one. I think our ego sometimes tries to make us feel as small or as damaged as possible. Or as different. Or as different Mm -hmm. as possible. And if we could just say, hey, just see, and you know, you could tell your own stories about how when, when we were going to the lunch table and we felt the same anxiety that our kids going through right now, I don't know if that helps or not, but it's just the idea of normalizing it and that our brain is trying to do its best to navigate through this world. But a lot of the times our brain basically tells us these lies that something bad might happen if you don't sit next to the right person at the lunch table, when in fact, none of these are survival things, but we, we, we put so much energy on it, whether it's about our kids going to the cafeteria or whether or not we're going to be able to pay our bills at the end of the month. Like this is universal, something that we all struggle with. It's very human and it's very, um, is as it should be. And I'm saying should, I'm using that word on purpose, meaning of course you're nervous in the lunchroom. It's like a big free for all where there's a bunch of human beings walking around trying to figure out where they belong. Mm -hmm. Why wouldn't you feel upset or uncomfortable and just realize that unfortunately it's set up that way. Yep. Sometimes at the beginning of the year, schools do things like sit with your seminar or sit with your, you know, homeroom to kind of ease that transition. But a lot of times it's just a free for all, just Mm -hmm. like recess can be. And that is difficult. And so instead of saying to our kids, like, there's something inherently wrong with them for feeling that way or that, well, then go ask someone to play with you because that's our anxiety of please don't tell me, kid, that you feel anxiety because I feel anxiety and I don't want to I don't want to deal with yours. We want our kids, you know, our favorite thing. And I'm speaking generally here, but when our kids come home and we'll say, how was your day? And they'll say, great, it was fine. And we're like, whew, we have nothing we have to deal with. Check that off the list. But when our kids come home and say, lunch was hard, or I'm not sure who to sit next to, not only do we take it on as our own problem that we feel like we need to solve, but then it kind of taps into our own discomfort because, you know, you can be a parent who like stands in from front of the school waiting for your kid. And there's a group of parents who like always huddle together and you feel left out. So even as like a... 
an adult, you experience that. Or like, you know, Todd, you may go to a workshop and you see a bunch of guys sitting together and they all know each other and you have to go sit by yourself. So what you're describing is something we all go through and it's a need to be approved of from the outside. Or that, how about this? A need to belong. Because okay. you're not a need a, to approval. belong, a need to belong to a certain other tribe or a certain other person. You want to feel like you belong with that person, and our brain tells us that if if we aren't invited into this group, then we're not of any value. And the only thing I try to remind myself when I'm going through this is it's all made up BS. Like my value, my value is not predicated upon how many Facebook likes I get, how many podcast listens we get. I mean, that's all nice, but my value is simply derived from the fact that I am here. I showed up. I am in this world and I don't need to do anything to try to prove my own worth because the fact that we're here is enough for us to be on this planet walking around. Exactly. And and I, I hear you and I always do this to you on the show, but I hear your words and I know you believe them, but you don't always live that. Of course not. And that's my point is sometimes when you give that advice, you're like, and I know that I'm worthy, but you don't all the time. Like of most course, of, right. I'm owning that. Right, right. For sure. And there are some times when I don't buy into the lies. True, true. So no, I mean, is it is it hollow advice? Most of the time, the advice I give to others is probably not something I do most of the time, but I do know that there you are do it moments, of, of course, yeah. just like the rest of us. Exactly. And that, and I think that the need for belong, so it's kind of two different things because what you're talking about is, is outside approval, like likes or, mm-hmm. or whatever, which I agree with you. Like for people who think that how many followers they have is how many people that like you mm-hmm. or admire you, that's not true at all. That I'm totally with you. But the need to belong is a human evolutionary, like anthropologic need, Mm -hmm. you know, like we need to belong. That's how we feel our humanness and connection is, is why we're here. Like when you really break down, like, you know, a lot of research about what's the point of life connection. Mm -hmm. And that's what human beings have. That's different than other mammals is we actually need each other to survive throughout our life cycle. So like, even though I'm saying that and that I'm not, that doesn't mean that at lunch, if you sit alone, you're going to die. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not that bad, but it is. It's a normal thing. It's a normal thing. Yeah, for sure. Exactly. And so it's like, instead of I shouldn't feel this way, or I should just sit here and say, I'm worthy. It's it's okay that I feel this way. Mm-hmm. And how can I you know, today it's okay that I'm sitting in my study hall eating by myself or, you know, whatever it may be. You know, I hear stories from kids, like one of my favorite kids, she would go to the bathroom and eat there every day. Cause she's like, I don't want to deal with this. And mm-hmm. she would watch a show and she's like, I don't want to deal with the non-belonging thing. Mm-hmm. It's, and so I'm going to do something that makes me feel valued. Now, those of you listening may think, oh, that's sad. Or she shouldn't have done that. And I found it to be a good coping tool. She's taking, she's, she's empowering herself. Because she also went into class and talked to kids at school. Yeah. She wasn't isolating. She just, her lunch period sucked. Mm-hmm. So she was like, instead of feeling like crap every day, I'm going to watch a show I love mm-hmm. and then return to, and, and not everybody can do that, sure. but it wasn't a sad story. Yeah. Um, but I also, you know, think that sometimes we have to make a new plan. Like, I think I'm going to try and sit over here or, you know, I do know this person. So I'm going to text them ahead of time and say, do you mind if I sit there tomorrow? These all can be anxiety provoking again, going back to anxiety, excitement, but they could also be exciting. Like 
one of the places that one of my daughters made most of her friends was during random lunches, meaning she has kind of a few best friends. And during when she would get a different lunch period than them, which has happened a number of times, she was forced to meet other people, Mm -hmm. you know, and she didn't like it. Like I remember the first day, (laughs) like I would feel her anxiety the first week of school about how am I going to do this? And then eventually she'd be like, I'm sitting with blah, 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 and blah. And she had to, her anxiety, which became excitement of who can I meet now? Yeah. But, you know, it's just a, this saying these things to your kids won't mean anything unless you do this in your own life. For sure. You know, like I think that our ability to, not just relate to them from like our childhood, you know, like, oh, I, I was sad too when I was a kid, but like right now, yeah. like right now, Todd, when do you feel like you don't belong? Um, when do I feel like... Or have you? Has that not been... I don't want to put you on the spot. Um, I don't know. I went up for this position, this board position, and I was asked not to do it. So I'm like, how can they not want me? I, I'm... You're qualified. You're I'm more than qualified, and I can't believe they chose somebody else. So that's one example. It was a board position at one of my PCI things. Yeah. Yeah. And I think mine is probably mostly around writing because I feel, you know, without, like, you know, I feel like I know what I'm saying and that I feel good about what I write, but then I read other people's writing and I'm like, oh, geez, mm-hmm. <laughs> like you did, I'm not even like scratching the surface on what a good writer is. You know, that's how it feels. Sure. And those things that we think to ourselves, like, how could they not want me or I'm not I'm as good as these people? Those things aren't necessarily true, but it gives you that sense. Like I like this whole book publishing process that I've been going through. I have this book coming out in February and it has had it's been four years and it has had so many ups and downs. And my kids have like heard every single story. Mm-hmm some of them very based in failure and some of them in great success. And so they've watched these waves of experience and they've watched it with you and I, with this show and you with men living, like, you know, sharing the challenges allows the successes to be feel real. Yeah. And I think you bring up an important point is if we can search for the examples that we currently have versus, Oh, when I was in sixth right. grade, it doesn't land as, as right. well. Right. I just had a guy. So we do these things in men living called small batches and it was a five person small batch and one of the guys decided to leave and i thought it was a really and it's just uh, it's just an ability to communicate and share and support one another and these are four of my really good friends and one of the guy bailed one of the guys bailed and i'm like can't believe that he bailed like how could he bail this is really important good work that we're doing with one another yeah. and he so i i felt like questioning my own self like is this not as important as i think it is and how come he doesn't think it's as important as i do so you know and that's just happened in the last week so i think the point is for parents who are listening seek out the examples if your kid's anxious because of the school cafeteria what is your version of that right now and how do you manage it yes like because that's the you tell them don't wrap it up in a beautiful bow necessarily no, be stuck but be you know like how do you plan to manage it what are your steps can you see things as opportunities can you view something through a new lens instead of going down like i always call it like the rabbit hole of shame and anxiety mm-hmm. you know like where everything goes yep. like down you know like this is never going to work um so anyway, that is my thoughts about anxiety and um, and excitement. And I was just so excited 
to even be informed about how close they are mm-hmm. to each other. Yeah. And how they're so it's so paradoxical. You it's such a different viewpoint. And how excited I am to like have this as a new tool for myself, but also as an explanation, or not as an explanation, but as a way of teaching. Yeah. You know? Well, for some reason it makes me think of isn't like cocaine and chocolate like the same part right. of the brain? So, I mean, I don't Anxiety know. Anxiety and excitement. Right. Like it doesn't surprise me yeah. that these two reside in the same pathways or neuropathways or the same chemical or whatever it is. I don't pretend to understand all that stuff, but it's not surprising to me at all that that this is much more similar than we think it is. Yeah. And just that, you know, normally I go for the mindfulness meditation, calm down, calm your breath, take a, you know, which I still believe in, but this is such an interesting new approach that no, you don't need to calm down. Mm -hmm. You just need to shift your focus and allow your heart rate to be as it is, you know, and to use it. Um, And that doesn't mean there's not value to taking some mindful breaths when you get jacked up. Yeah. All of the above. All right. So we have to leave because we're about to do our 125th Zen talk. Well, I'll be. That's our Team Zen. Team Zen. Uh, it's 25 bucks a month. Uh, it's when we spend time with our listeners in real time on Zoom. It's a community of parents. Connect as much as you want with the group. We have a Facebook community. Um, the last one we did was about an autistic daughter and then 12-year-old boy navigating gender. The one before that was a 9-year-old dealing with meltdowns and a 15-year-old boy smoking weed and an 18-year-old daughter lashing out. So who knows what we're about to experience in this Zen Talk number 125. But if you're interested, the first month is free. Go to ZenParentingRadio.com. Click, uh, enter the coupon code FRIEND if you want to uh, check out the community. We would love to have you. Uh, and then I also have men living. So if you're a guy and you want to connect authentically and vulnerability and vulnerably um, with other guys trying to change their world, I invite you to check out menliving.org. And then I also am a coach, one-on-one coach for guys. And that's at toddadamscoaching.com. Anything else you want to share, my no, darling? No, just, um, uh, you know, subscribe to Zen Parenting Moment. Like Todd said, just scroll down below your podcast that you're listening to right now, and that's the first thing, like subscribe to Zen Parenting Moment or go to zenparentingradio.com and subscribe there. And it's just a good way to get some good, helpful, hopeful moments on a Tuesday and a Friday. There you go. Uh, see you guys next week. Adios. Week. Thanks for listening, everyone. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And feel free to leave a five-star review. It helps people find us. Hey, looking for more support, exclusive content, and an awesome community of parents? Join Team Zen, where you'll get zero pressure and 100% support. First month's free if you enter the coupon code FRIEND. Go to zenparentingradio.com. Time is at a premium these days, which is why we're delivering help and hope right to your inbox. Sign up to receive Zen Parenting Moment, a quick read two times a week that helps ground you and remind you of what you already know. Go to zenparentingradio.com to subscribe. A special shout out to the guys or for women who want to share a pretty great opportunity with the men in their lives. Men Living is committed to improving men's lives through connection. Included in our program is a low-pressure, 75-minute weekly virtual gathering for men to give and get support and build friendships. If you want to learn more, you can head to menliving.org. Join us for our other podcast, Pop Culturing, where we take a Gen X view on movies and TV and have fun breaking down key moments and the themes that teach us what it means to be human. And don't forget about our founding partner, Jeremy Craft at avidco.net. He is a bald-headed beauty, painting and remodeling throughout Chicago and area. His number is 630-956-1800. Thanks for listening, everybody, and keep on trucking.